we get you a Janet Jackson mic? <gasps> yeah. Because you'll still have headphones. But then you can be like, into it and we can pick up what you're saying i think that's i like that janet jackson impression (laughs) thank you (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) do you like janet jackson i do like janet jackson i love janet jackson i think i think (laughs) she's uh yeah, she's a fucking tough cookie, and I think everybody needs to give her a little bit more goddamn respect. <laughs> Growing up, we had a CD of her, like, we had a CD of her best hits, uh-huh. and then a DVD Ooh. of her music videos. <gasps> so oh, I grew up with great. a lot of Janet Jackson. <laughs> a lot of, mm. ha, ha, hoo, hoo, but you get the money too. Greedy motherfuckers try to have it. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> Love Janet Jackson. <laughs> That's amazing. I had... Oh, man. This is how you can tell that we grew up in very different households. I had a cassette tape. Yeah, you heard Mm -hmm. that correctly. (laughs) No, a VHS. VHS. Mm -hmm. And cassettes. Uh, That's because that's my generation. (laughs) I had a a VHS tape of Shania Twain music videos. (laughs) And the Cobb family band would get together and play along. Who said VHS tape? (laughs) Yes. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. My dad was on guitar and my sister was on drums. And then I sang because I thought I could. But uh, turns out I'm not the singer in the family. Chelsea is. (laughs) She's way better at it than I am. But, you know, at 11, I was really like, man, I feel like a woman. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's so much fun. Good stuff. Good stuff. Have you ever done live karaoke where there's a live band instead of... No. I didn't do it. Okay. But I watched it... Fun. ...one time in a backyard. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And it's super interesting to watch and play. Very that's, talented musician. Yeah. That sounds very fun. Oh, I. you know what I was going to tell you? Quick side note. Last night when Danny and I were waiting for our food to be delivered... Mm-hmm. Danny gave me a like a hundred question quiz oh. on history, uh-huh. and I kind of killed it. Oh, I was like, I have to tell Kian, I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> Even Danny was like, How the fuck do you know that? <laughs> on a couple questions, I was like, I don't know. It lives rent free up here. I feel like we've done so many of these <laughs> episodes and have like touched on history a little bit, yep. kind of, but it just is in there. Mm-hmm. It's just waiting to be unlocked. <laughs> It's not at the forefront of the brain. It's definitely in the subconscious at this point. (laughs) But it's there. It's there. (laughs) True story. Well, hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. Hey, y'all. This is That Broad's Got Moxie. Mm -hmm. I'm Kiana. I'm Cassie. Danny's here. Mm -hmm. Yelling at me specifically. (laughs) Disrespecting her authority. (laughs) (laughs) And this week... I'm going first. I'm going first yeah. this week. Yeah. God. Just, yeah. I had to clarify. Like, I realized <laughs> that I just finished talking um, and I'm going to do it again. It's okay. I'm glad you said something because I already forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Glad we're both on the same page. We have to wait for the birds outside. <laughs> it's hot in here. So the window's open mm-hmm. and I think we're picking up the birds. <laughs> but you know what? They're fine. <laughs> or are they? another one just they're awake another they one was peanuts. like oh you're fine you're fine let me say something now oh yeah yeah you could probably get started now i could probably <laughs> birds are gone. <laughs> lest they come back while i'm still yammering okay so here we go picture it it's been 73 years since the titanic left on its doomed maiden voyage to new york mm-hmm. after last reporting its location in a distress call The Titanic continued to drift, leaving explorers with a search area that spanned hundreds of miles in the North Atlantic. On September 1st, 1985, which when this comes out Mm -hmm. will be 36 years to the day, because that's how we got to this point, because I was like Googling, the on-duty watch team of the NOR called to the ship's captain to have a look at what was showing on the video monitor. 
The sight was unmistakable. One of Titanic's boilers. The crew erupted with cheers and applause, and someone popped a bottle of champagne to celebrate. But the mood took a sudden dark turn after they noticed that it was nearly 2.20 a.m., the exact time the ocean liner had sunk and taken more than 1,500 passengers and crew to their watery deaths. That's... (laughs) That's... That would be horrifying to discover. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. It, the whole thing was like, oh, we got to, we can't celebrate like and dance on people's graves. Like, no, no, no. That is bad juju. We just found this. We can't, we can't do this to ourselves. Very few passengers made it onto lifeboats that day. Mm-hmm. But today I will be telling you about one of the very fortunate people who survived. The unsinkable Molly Brown. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. I actually don't know much about her, but I do love a Titanic story. Because mm-hmm. as you know, mm-hmm. it did sink on April 15th. It sure did. It's my birthday. It sure the hell did. So I feel like I've been connected to this boat. Yep. And Danny loves it. And when we went to Vegas, we saw the giant piece. Like they had it on, they had a whole exhibit yeah. on it. We got boarding passes. Oh. of people who were on it and what class, like where they, where their room was, what class they were in, a history about them. Oh, wow. Also speaking of the Titanic, just yes. because I'm obsessed with it. Uh-huh. Have you seen the Bowen Yang SNL? Oh my fucking God. <laughs> yes. Where he's the iceberg. <laughs> Bowen Yang is a comedy genius. He did win an Emmy for it. Oh my God. Yes. I, do you listen to his podcast? No, I didn't know he had a podcast. Las Culturistas. Oh I have. God. It's a joy to listen to. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> he is I, a <laughs> sassy queer, and I love him so much. I quote the, if you haven't seen the Iceberg sketch, uh-huh. do yourself a favor and just look it up on YouTube. Uh-huh. Iceberg, SNL, Bow and Yang. Easy peasy. I quote that all the fucking time. Because <laughs> there's that bit where he goes, 12 tracks, no skips, swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> and so now whenever I like an album, I'll be uh-huh. like, okay, how many tracks? Perfect. So <laughs> the one that comes up most often with is the Electric Light Orchestra's Discovery album. Yep. Nine tracks, no skips, swear to God. <laughs> anyway, I, oh, I love it. I just oh. had to bring it up. So good. Okay. <clears throat> the unsinkable Molly Brown. Molly Brown. Okay. Margaret Molly Brown was born in Hannibal, Missouri on July 18th, 1867, which makes her a cancer. Yeah. yeah. She's a water sign. Ah. (laughs) That's what saved her. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Her parents were Irish Catholic immigrants, John and Johanna. She was the fifth of seven children. Oh, wow. Her parents, this is funny, had very progressive views that valued education, even for their daughters. <gasps> Whoa. 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 Uh, what a shocker. Women are being educated. I know. What are we going to do? <laughs> but only until she was 13. So. Oh, that's reasonable. <laughs> so she got those fundamentals in, mm-hmm. uh, but then had to go work at a cigar factory. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 13. Got to get in that workforce. (laughs) Oh, you're 13 and you don't have a job? (laughs) Freeloader. (laughs) Yep. So she worked long hours in terrible conditions because of course she did Mm -hmm. until she was officially an adult. And then she said, fuck this and headed west with her brother, Daniel, her sister, Marianne and Marianne's husband. The group settled in a log cabin in Leadville, Colorado where Molly quickly found a job working in a mercantile store. Hmm. When I read about her moving, at first it said department store, and I was like, there was no Macy's (laughs) in Colorado in 1867. What is this actually? Oh, it's a trading post because it's the fucking Wild West. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So getting settled in her new home, she became active in the local Catholic community and volunteered her time in soup kitchens and with other charity works. A short time after her arrival, she was introduced to a handsome, educated man named James Joseph Brown. J.J. was a mining engineer 
with respectable profits, but was by no means rich. After a summer courtship, the two had fallen deeply in love, and Molly and JJ were married on September 1st, oh. 1886. Oh. <laughs> so many September 1sts that I did not expect. I was like, that, that's weird. What that a is, weird coincidence. Yeah. What does it mean? Mm-hmm. So this is a quote from her. She said, I wanted a rich man, but I loved Jim Brown. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Jim was as poor as we were and had no better chance in life. I struggled hard with myself in those days. Finally, I decided I'd be better off with a poor man whom I loved than with a wealthy one whose money had attracted me. <laughs> so I married Jim Brown. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> She set out to to find a, a tycoon, but was like, but I like him. That's really cute. Yeah. So Molly and JJ had two children together, and life was going along just fine and dandy until everything changed. Mm. So in 1893, everything came tumbling down around them uh, in the silver crash oh. that affected the mining industry. Okay. And while Leadville already had its share of troubles, mm-hmm. right, all, all sorts of things happening, the crash created extraordinary poverty and anxiety about jobs yeah. and housing and all the, thing that, all the things that come mm-hmm. with uh, everything going tits up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is, that's a grounds for a ghost town. Yes. A, that's exactly what it is. Um, so in the midst of all this chaos, uh, JJ, (laughs) goddamn crows, (laughs) um, JJ made a fortuitous discovery and found an obscene amount of gold in the Little Johnny Mine. Which I was like, that's a funny name for mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I did like it. So JJ's an engineer. He is a primary shareholder in this mining company that's mm-hmm. trying to just stay above water. But then one of his well-researched yeah, things yeah. struck gold, literally. <laughs> and so because they were primary shareholders, JJ and Molly became millionaires. Literally overnight. Wow. Wow, indeed. So in 1894, the Browns bought a $30,000 Victorian mansion. That's $30,000 that times. Damn. That's a expensive house now. That's a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they buy this huge, beautiful Victorian mansion in Denver and became the hippest cats in town. Hey. (laughs) Denver, however, was not unscathed. And with the silver crash came... Poverty, homelessness, crime. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't great. All Everything around Denver was just like a garbage fire. It oh, was no. really bad. <laughs> so the turmoil of the city drew the attention of progressive reformers, and Molly was eager to join them. Molly became a charter member of the Denver Women's Club, whose mission was the improvement of women's lives by continuing education and philanthropy. Mm. She worked to fund public parks, install public baths, create safe havens for women and children, fighting for mine workers' rights, Mm -hmm. and helped establish one of the country's first juvenile courts. Wow. Yeah. This is is late 1800s? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She was like, oh, all you progressives are coming in. And want to make positive changes? <laughs> I'm into that, too. <laughs> Who would be against that? You'd be surprised. You would be surprised. <laughs> um, so, she's she's in the community. She's, she's a new, very, very new wealthy woman. Yeah. Never had this kind of life in her entire life. <laughs> she was like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> so adjusting to the life of a society lady, Molly immersed herself in the arts and culture and learned French, German, Italian, and Russian. Wow. And became fluent in them. Wow. Yeah. 
That's a, a lot. <laughs> it sure is. For someone who for only went to school until she was 13 mm-hmm. and had no, like, quote-unquote formal education, yeah. like, you know, like, further education, yeah, to become fluent in four other languages. Wow. Yeah. Wow, indeed. They do say it becomes easier after you learn your second. That's so I true. guess maybe it's not that impressive. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kiana said with the most disdain she could muster. I'm just jealous. Ditto. Same. Same here, girl. Her love of language proved very helpful when the Browns embarked on a world tour that took them through Ireland, France, Russia, India, Japan, and everywhere in between. Oh my goodness. Like just brrr, straight across that's like, like straight across the world. The dream. <laughs> right. That's super cool. Super cool. And it, it just like blows my mind that while she didn't know every language Mm -hmm. like if somebody in this country doesn't know english Mm -hmm. they're probably gonna know one of those other european languages (laughs) because that's how europe works yeah (laughs) so though molly was a world traveler a philanthropist and a budding socialite she absolutely marched to the beat of her own drum did not give a shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) she wore ostentatious hats i love it and people not necessarily were a huge fan that's that's usually the thing with, uh-huh. like, new money versus yes. old money. Yes. I think we can safely say we've all seen Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So we've, we've all seen Titanic. Mm-hmm. Kathy Bates mm-hmm. as Molly Brown. Kathy, the mm-hmm. wonderful, timeless oh, Kathy damn. Bates. We love Kathy Bates. <laughs> that is a moxie broad if I've ever met one. Uh, so talented. Oh, so amazing. Anyway, I was just watching American Horror Story the other day. Oh, <laughs> when as her as Madame Lalaurie. Oh. Madame Lalaurie's absolute trash, and Shh. Kathy Bates plays it so, so well. well. So when she's just the head, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> acted the shit out of that disembodied head. <laughs> or when she learns that there's a black president. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that. That character moment was very funny. Uh, yes, oh, Kathy Bates, we fucking love you. Mm-hmm. So, but she played Molly Brown so well, like so very Molly Brown mm-hmm. of like, shit, yeah, I got more money than I know what to do with, but I'm going to give it all away and I'm going to be just a really nice down to earth fucking cool person. Yeah. And like decent human being. Yeah. Yeah. Ostentatious hats. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. She probably had a haberdasher on lock. Oof. I hope she did. (laughs) What a good word. Haberdasher. Love it. (laughs) So even though Molly threw beautiful parties and held opulent, like, charity events, Mm -hmm. despite all that, she was never able to gain entry into Denver's most elite social group, the Sacred 36, which is a dumb name if you ask (sighs) me. Of course they call it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, so the Sacred 36 attended exclusive bridge parties, which fucking snooze fest, if yeah. I've ever seen one. <laughs> and these, you know, amazing dinners held by Louise Sneed Hill, who Molly called, quote, the snobbiest woman in Denver. <laughs> and to that I said, yeah, she's probably a bitch. Yeah, probably. <laughs> she's in a club called the Sacred 36. Blech. Come on now. Mm-hmm. Elitist much. Mm-hmm. After 23 years of marriage, Molly and JJ signed a separation agreement. Oh. Molly got a cash settlement and got to keep the Victorian mansion in Denver and also the summer house in Bear Creek. So, good stuff. Yeah, good for her. <laughs> she also received a $700 monthly allowance, which is equivalent to $20,163 in 2020. Get that alimony. <laughs> Yeah. And she used that to continue her travels and social work. Not a bad deal. Yeah. (laughs) Like 23 years and you're just like, well, you're kind of a bummer now. Mm -hmm. But she moved on and moved up. I mean, 23 years, they went through a lot of changes. Yeah. They did a lot of traveling. They just probably drifted. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. So now more independent than ever. 
Molly really started to make waves. Uh, she joined forces with the Political Equity League. Mm-hmm. And between 1909 and 1914, before women even had the right to vote, <laughs> she made several unsuccessful bids for a seat in Congress. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. You know that. <laughs> yeah. She was like, what, are you going to stop me? <laughs> Everybody loves me. Yeah. And it's true. She did have a lot of support. But of course, because the patriarchy, yeah. they were like, oh, no, you can't. Congress? What are you talking about? A woman? What are you going <laughs> to. You have to spend all your day thinking about children and makeup. Uh-huh. How could you possibly focus on politics? Exactly. Molly spent the first few months of 1912 traveling with her daughter and her friends, John Jacob Astor, and his wife, Madeline. All the money. Just all the money. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing it around. The group was traveling through Europe when she got word that her grandson had become gravely ill, Mm. which I was, when I read that, I was like, that message must have taken a bananas amount of time to reach her. Yeah. She's, and fuck it, we'll just say she's in Cairo Mm -hmm. and he's in Colorado. Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) That's a distance. Quite. That's a lot of ocean between (laughs) them. Sure the hell is. So she needed to get home ASAP Mm -hmm. and immediately booked passage on the first available liner leaving for New York. The RMS Titanic. Casual. Cash. (laughs) Real cash. (laughs) How very lucky of her. So their little entourage Mm -hmm. boarded the luxurious ocean liner on April 10th, 1912 as first class passengers and for four days enjoyed opulent amenities Delicious food, impeccable service. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've all seen the movie. Yeah, you know what it's like to be in first class. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. Um, no, me neither. <laughs> I've seen it happen to yes. other people. <laughs> <laughs> we've 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 all put ourselves in Rose's stateroom and been like, she just traveling with a Monet. Okay, <laughs> okay, I see this. Casual. So. All of this grandiosity mm-hmm. abruptly ended when the Titanic struck an iceberg on April 14th at 11.40 p.m. The ship was going to sink mm-hmm. and panic erupted. Molly fucking jumped in the action, into action, helped other people onto lifeboats, utilizing her skills and all her different languages to oh. communicate with other passengers. Wow. I um, didn't even think about that. Yeah. And was finally persuaded to leave the ship in lifeboat number six. As the boats paddled away from the wreckage, filled not even to half capacity. Yeah. Oh, God. Breaks my heart. She urged the crewmen to go back and try to save people in the water. So, again, much like in the movie, very well done. It's it only it takes doing research like this to be like, oh, no, that that's what happened, according Mm -hmm. to Molly and other people in this fucking boat. <laughs> yeah. Like, a fight ensued. This man was screaming at her about, like, we can't bring people onto the boats. They're going to sink us. They're mm-hmm. All of this stuff. <laughs> Molly, angered by her defiance of the crewmen, threatened to just throw them all overboard and go do it her damn self. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes. <laughs> so, whether or not they ended up... It, they did go back, but I don't think they ended up being able to save anybody. Mm-hmm. Her insistence on saving as many passengers as they could solidified her place in history. Mm-hmm. The survivors of the Titanic were rescued by the RMS Carpathia, and once aboard, although sore, tired, and practically frozen, Molly began to take action. Again, with her knowledge of foreign languages, she helped console survivors who spoke little English. She helped pass out blankets and supplies and quickly realized that, first of all, most of the people that had been saved Mm -hmm. were women. And they had lost everything. Husbands, children, money, valuables, clothes, everything to their name. Yeah. And they would need to start a new life in a new country with nothing. So she fucking was like, I'm going to take this to task and rallied other first class passengers to donate money to help those less fortunate passengers and before the Carpathia reached New York City $10,000 had been raised oh wow 
So ten thousand dollars in that in in that yeah. time went a long way. Yeah. Legend claims that Molly, stepping off the Carpathia onto the safe shore of New York, boldly exclaimed, "Typical brown luck! I'm unsinkable." <laughs> <laughs> Which she didn't actually say a fucking like gossip rag. Yeah. You know, Ooh. said it, but Would God like- damn it. You know what, Molly girl? You are unsinkable. So after the tragedy of the Titanic, she started a survivors committee to fucking again rally mm-hmm. and get as much money from these other rich people to help these women. Mm-hmm. Who went through an extremely traumatic Yes, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. With her newfound fame after the disaster, Molly spoke out for many causes. She served as, like, a mediator of sorts between striking Colorado miners Mm -hmm. who'd been working under brutal conditions (laughs) and the capitalist interests of John D. Rockefeller. Oh, that guy. Oh, that guy. (laughs) Who's just really giving him the business. Yeah. Um... So she helped f- calm the waters between that and actually got John Rockefeller to ease up <laughs> and not be such a dick. Yeah. And actually got the miners to be able to, like, have livable wages <laughs> and not be treated so terribly. Yeah. Because labor laws. <laughs> yeah. Rockefeller was like, ugh, I won't exploit them that much now. That much. Just just a little. It'll just Just mostly. Mostly. <laughs> yeah. After all the stuff in Colorado, she began spending much of her time in Newport, Rhode Island, Mm. which was the pinnacle of American high society at the beginning of the 20th century. So basically, Newport Mm. was full of independent women. Independent women in the sense of, like, they're all fucking loaded as shit. Mm -hmm. They're all into philanthropic Mm-hmm. things and their husbands are never around because they're all big businessmen mm-hmm. who work in new york city so that's where they spend all their time and like come home on the weekends and holidays that sounds almost ideal yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i hate you bye honey <laughs> it's like kinu yes but on a smaller scale but on rhode island richer people <laughs> yeah <laughs> with a shitload of money yeah absolutely so Molly was absolutely drawn to this. She was like, you bitches know what you're doing. I want to come hang out because also I got more money than I know what to do with. So let's, let's philanthropize. Mm -hmm. I love to make, I made that word up and now I like to use it. All right. Um, Where was I? She's in Newport, Rhode Island. So she's in Newport. And even though by comparison to all these fucking like Vanderbilts and shit was comparatively small, they were like, you're fun. Come on, come on, come on. You can join us. They were not the mean girls. Good. So she quickly was accepted by all these people and became very close friends with Alva Vanderbilt, the president of the National Women's Suffrage Association. Oh. Mm -hmm. So together, the women became involved in the National Women's Trade Union League, in an effort to advocate for a minimum wage and an eight-hour workday. Hell yeah. Yes. She was like, let's use all our money mm-hmm. and not bother about any of these men. Let's mm-hmm. fucking take care of our own. Yeah. So Molly traveled the country speaking on both women's issues and labor issues and authored dozens of newspaper articles just spreading the good word about how we need to take care of people. <laughs> right. Uh, she became increasingly close f- to the radical side of the Women's Party, led by Alice Paul, okay. which pushed hard for a national suffrage amendment. Good. So <laughs> she went hard. Yeah. She was like, no, fuck you. Let's make this happen. I want to vote. I want to vote. And I want my comrades to vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. So she's doing, she's doing all the suffrage stuff. She's getting in there, fighting for rights. And then when World War I broke out... Molly shifted her focus and worked with the Red Cross, like set up facilities in her own Newport home. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. To aid in the war effort. Mm -hmm. And then later traveled overseas to work with the American Committee for Devastated France. 
Oh, wow. Again, all of her language, mm-hmm. like, between fighting for everyone's rights from Newport and then traveling over to Europe after mm-hmm. the devastation of World War One, everything that she had learned, like, taking it upon herself mm-hmm. to be like, no, I'm interested in this. This is something that I feel like is important. Mm-hmm. Fucking... Uh, she's just she's yeah. amazing. And, like, all of the things that she's getting into mm-hmm. are just, like, good. Like, They're good. Kind, yes. Pretty pretty unoffensive yeah. in my, like, first glance mm-hmm. yeah. and understanding. It's, and it's, it's just- a story of, like, this woman who, <laughs> who just suddenly had everything she could have ever wanted mm-hmm. in her life and then turned around and used it for good. Yeah. She just cared about other people. Yeah. Weird, right? Yeah. What a great thing to do. So... From the late 1920s into the 30s, Mm -hmm. uh, the dynamic Molly continued to explore her interests and defy conventions and began working as an actress. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) She's done everything else. She might as well try acting. Yeah, why not? Uh, She regularly appeared on the stage in Le Aiglon, inspired by the work of Sarah Bernhard. And her portrayal of the Duke of Reichstadt. So, on October 26th, 1932, while sleeping in her lavish hotel room at the Barbizon Hotel, Mm -hmm. Molly passed away. She's buried next to JJ in Mm -hmm. Westbury, New York. Molly was not only unsinkable, Mm -hmm. she was unflappable in her fight for workers and women, education and literacy for children, and historic preservation. Wow. <laughs> and that is the unsinkable Molly Brown. Love that. That's yeah. so cool. It was very, like, gave me the warm and fuzzies just about how decent of a person she was. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And also, I love the fact that she was like, if you don't like me, that's too bad. Because <laughs> I'm just living my life. And she's not doing bad things. No, she's not. She's not hurting anybody. <laughs> So I got my information from history.com, mm-hmm. biography.com, and then mollybrown.org. Oh. Did you know? I can't. So the reason why I know the name, the unsinkable Molly Brown, aside from, you know, the Titanic. Uh-huh. I feel like I was in elementary school or something, mm-hmm. and there's a children's book or yeah. like a children's chapter book after her. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and she's been, obviously, we talked about Kathy Bates mm-hmm. portraying her in Titanic. Mm-hmm. Amazing. But she's also been played by Debbie Reynolds oh. in a musical called mm-hmm. The Unsinkable Molly Brown. And there's been Cloris Leachman played her twice oh. <laughs> in her <laughs> lifetime in two different productions. Uh, one was a stage production. Mm-hmm. One was a TV series. So, I mean... Super cool. Super cool. All right. Who are you talking about this week? I am talking about Mahasti Ganjavi. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, Mahasti Ganjavi was a 12th century Persian poet. Oh. So, we're going back. We're going way back. Going way back. Okay. Different part of the world. Mm-hmm. Landing in Persia. But, Okay. Kind of, so Persia doesn't exist. Yes. <laughs> so she was born in 1089 in what is now modern day Ganja, Azerbaijan. Okay. That's where we are. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, her real name was probably Manija, mm-hmm. but she picked up the name Mahasti as a pen name. Oh, okay. And so she spent her, spent the recorded periods of her life under this name. Hmm. Mahasti is two Persian words mashed together, ma meaning moon and sati meaning lady. So her name is Moon oh, Lady. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> there aren't many details about her life, which is kind of what you run into in the 12th century. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is believed that she was the well-educated daughter of a theologian mm-hmm. of the city. You know, I talked about this in the last episode. Yeah. I read these. To myself before I come on the podcast. Absolutely. And I am freaking Morgan Freeman on this bitch. I am <laughs> pronouncing everything right. And then I'm in front of people and I'm like, um, 
theologian and theologian. I just want everybody to know that I'm very capable, <laughs> even if it's not evidence. <laughs> um, She's real good talker. I'm I'm good. Speak good. <laughs> I do it well. <laughs> okay, back to Mahasti. Okay, <laughs> so even when she was young, she had a passion for music mm. that it that the neighbors did not enjoy about her. <laughs> And they would complain to her father, but he wasn't that bothered by it and would inform the neighbors that actually her horoscope said that she'd become a courtesan. So she kind of has to practice. So get used to it. <laughs> I love a man who's like, her sign <laughs> is giving her a lot of direction in this intellectual, independent vein. Mm-hmm. And we need to respect that. Yeah. <laughs> so... At some point in her life, her father dies, mm-hmm. leaving her and her mother to fend for themselves. And they decided to move to Ganje and settled there either in a tavern or a brothel. Cool. One of the two. Either um, way, fun times. Yes. <laughs> so it is perhaps this environment and upbringing <laughs> that inspired some of her work as a poet and her alleged, quote unquote, free way of living. Ooh. <laughs> She's a little, a little spicy. Yeah. <laughs> she wrote her poems in different styles, but really became famous in Az- Azerbaijan's medieval literature as a freedom-loving poetess and the master of the rubai, or a quatrain. Is sort okay. of what it is. Mm-hmm. So a rubai is a poem consisting of four lines and are considered to be the most ancient Persian poetic form that is original to its language. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, each rubai is a separate poem and should not be considered as a single verse in a long poem. Gotcha. And okay. I say this because it was a mistake that was made in a lot of translations mm-hmm. of rubais. Oh, I a lot see. of English translations of rubais. Mm. So it's sort of been. Yeah. They're like, oh, there's eight stanzas in this poem. And it's like, no, those are eight poems, you asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Get it together. Exactly. So. <laughs> Back to this. The first three lines of the poem act as a setup into the fourth line. Okay. And that fourth line should be, quote, sublime, subtle, or pithy and clever. This sounds like some fun yeah. poetry. So one example that we still have of Mahasti's rubais is called A World... So I'm going to read a few poems. Please, this one. please do. I'm so excited. <laughs> and the poem is called A World There Is For Those In Love With Minds Of Precious Stones which I will read now. Um, and this is an English translation. Obviously, I'm not going to read it in Persian because... <laughs> please, everybody's pleased that you're not doing that. I'm, yeah, I'm doing a favorite, everybody. <laughs> so this is an English translation done by Edward G. Brown. A world there is for those in love with mines of precious stones, but bards select a different world as settings for their thrones. The bird who eats loves magic grain lives on another plane, his nest beyond both worlds, ignoring riches, scorning fame. <gasps> <laughs> Side note, I fucking love when you read poetry. I just want you to read your poetry, anybody's poetry. It doesn't matter who's. <laughs> just, I love it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Maybe one day. Okay. <laughs> Maybe one day. So, in her time, she it is believed that she was persecuted for her courageous poetry condemning religious obscurantism which is basically withholding religious texts or manipulating religious texts to the masses. Uh So she was, like, not into that. Mm -hmm. She was not into, like, fanaticism Mm -hmm. and dogmas. Okay. And so she was persecuted for that. She also wrote poems that were, like, focused on philosophy and love that glorified the joy of living and the fullness you feel with love. Yeah. Her poems reflected the people's, especially the women's, dreams of a free and happy life and are distinguished as humanistic and optimistic. Beautiful. Yes. Okay. So now I'm going to read another one. Okay. This is untitled, I believe, because I could not find the title. Okay. But it is a translation done by Gladys Evans. No force can bind us, pull of moment, arrows flying home, nor any wild nostalgia that seized our hearts will home. Though my soft braids turn chains of steel and anchored in your heart, could any chain keep me at home if I should wish to roam? Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So that was very much like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm here with you, 
But what if? But what, what if? if I wanted to leave? <laughs> and that's nice. The most complete collection of her works is in the Nosat al Mahalas, which is an anthology book mm-hmm. that contains around uh, 4,100 Persian rubais by some 300 poets between the 11th and 13th centuries. Oh, wow. And 60 of her poems are in there. So she's got she's got yeah. a big chunk in there. Yeah, she spent most of her creative period in the palace of Sultan Sanjar Selhugi, and she was celebrated for her creative mind there. Mm. So he had it's about damn time somebody was like, "You're brilliant." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he really liked her. It's argued among some scholars whether. They had a sexual relationship or not, if she was like actually a courtesan in his court sure. or if she was just an intellectual. And since she was a very open in her work and a free thinker of the time, there are a lot of legends around her love life. Mm-hmm. Some of her alleged love affairs are recounted in the works of Juhari of Bukhara, but it's probably all fictional. Mm-hmm. Like it's not... Mm-hmm. It's probably fan fiction about her. Honestly, <laughs> it's just erotic fan fiction, right? <laughs> okay, Tina, calm down. Anywho, back to the Sultan. Mm-hmm. So, maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Who cares? So she attracted his attention on a snowy day when they crossed paths, and he was about to mount his horse, mm-hmm. and she wrote a rubai on the spot. Oh, okay. <laughs> she was like, "Oh, hello, King." And she said, for you, heaven has saddled fortune's steed, O Sultan, and chosen you from all who lead. Now it spreads a silver sheet upon the ground. Steed's gold showed hooves, mud won't impede. And so he was like, oh, damn, that's about me. (laughs) Hell yeah. And so he was like, why don't you why don't you come back to the palace? Right. And so she did. And she at this period, she was described as the beloved of the sultan and elegant lady of the times. Hell yeah. And she was very active writing and creating at this time, known by others as a poet, a singer, a musician, and a chess player. So oh. she was fucking smart. <laughs> smart yeah. people play chess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't play chess, girl. <laughs> what did she at the oh lake day? Oh my god. At lake day, what did I... I asked if you needed the king to win, mm-hmm. and everybody looked at me and went, yeah, <laughs> that's the point of the game. And I was like, I'm just going to go over here and inflate my giant donut. <laughs> oh, cool. I knew that anyway. <laughs> cool. Bye. Uh, oh. oh, man. Okay. So she was a poet, singer, musician, chess player, and some of her contemporaries include Adhib Sabir, Rashid Vatvat, Abid Al-Vashad, Jabali. He had one more name on there that I <laughs> And then Anvari. So those are just famous Persian poets of the time. Mm. Outside of the Sultan's court, she also brushed shoulders with Omar Kaim, who was another Rubai composer at the time. Mm-hmm. And them two are known to have like revolutionized what the Persian understanding of a rubai is. Oh, wow. So they are very influential people. Yeah. She also brushed shoulders with Nizami, who is a Persian Sunni Muslim poet who is considered to be the greatest romantic epic poet ever. Oh, damn. Yeah. So these are kind her of, contemporaries? Yeah. Shit. And these are people that respected the shit out of her. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. And it's just a bunch of creatives being together and writing freaking... She's thrown poems. I imagine she's just every situation a, a poem is coming. Everything out of her mouth. she says is liter- just poetry coming out of her mouth. Yeah, ugh, four lines of beauty. Gosh, damn. In her life, it is assumed that she traveled through a few cities, spent some time with the Sultan, mm-hmm. and then ended up back in Ganja, where she was born in her adulthood. So, she spent her time on the court. You know, mm-hmm. history is not really recorded well. She's now back in Ganja, and she meets a man named Amir Ahmad, who is the preacher's son, Mm. and they fall in love. Okay. For a little bit. (laughs) For a little bit. For For just a a little. For for a skosh, she was in love with the son of a preacher man. Yeah. So, you stole my joke. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry! (laughs) No, no, no. No, it was my... 
listen. The joke that I wrote down was... <laughs> it's a terrible joke. No, tell me! It's, she started off as Dusty Springfield, really into the son of a preacher man, but in the end, she was not. She was clean autumn meadow. <laughs> That's not a good joke. It was a pun <laughs> rolled. And that was like a that was like a joke burrito. I need I need air. I need to call. <laughs> Danny's slow on the uptake was like what? <laughs> Girl, that was fucking clever. I apologize for just no. snack. I was like, I'm really glad your mind went there too. Because like the second I read that she married a son of a preacher man, I was like, oh. Oh. The only one who yeah. could ever reach her was, was the son of a preacher, man. <laughs> so now I'm going to read you a poem that she wrote about him. Oh, yes. Please do. <laughs> okay. I'm Mahasti, and I'm most fair of those to be had. I'm famous for my beauty from Iraq to Masad. Preacher's boy, you're nothing but useless. Bad. If I get no bread, meat, or prick, I get really mad. Oh my god! <laughs> Which is like, is that a better, is that equal to Son of a Preacher Man? <laughs> I mean... Should we just be singing that? If I get no bread, meat, or prick, I get real mad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's speaking her truth. Yeah. She's like, look, I need dinner and to get it in or I'm gonna be upset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she, she wrote it down for everybody to know. She sure did. <laughs> It's an epic fucking poem now. <laughs> it's sort of like when Beyonce dropped Lemonade. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Same thing. Same level. Yeah. Uh, she is the Beyonce of the 12th century. <laughs> I want everybody to know that Cassie was going for a real sassy fan flip. Like a hand fan. <laughs> but it went straight out of her hand. It got thrown I, right behind I her. just threw it. <laughs> Unfortunately, there isn't really much documented after her marriage. Mm -hmm. Also, there's some question if it was a marriage or if she was just his mistress. Gotcha. But not much documented. Um, and it is believed she died sometime later around 1185. Remember Nizami that I yes. mentioned earlier? Yeah. So she is apparently buried in his mausoleum with him. Okay. That's where it's believed her body ended up. Uh-huh. Curious. But, yeah. Hmm. Curious. Hmm. He, she also died like 12 years before him. So yeah. she was just occupying that She's before he did. Holding, holding the place for him. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And I wonder, uh, I don't know. I really don't know why they're both there, but I wonder if it's like a poet. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's like a, a whole, a whole thing. Mm -hmm. But if they're the only two in there. <laughs> I don't know if they're the only two in there either. See? So many questions. So many questions. We that will not be answered on this podcast no. today, tomorrow, or ever. We're not archaeologists. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, and there's like no English translation explaining. Why. Sure. Huh. Well, how about that? Yeah. So she was famous and also infamous for her truly liberated behavior. And her work in life was a huge influence on a few other creatives in Iran. Or so in Iran, but what was once sure. Persia. Mm -hmm. So she influenced female poet Jahan Khatun and one of Iran's greatest satirists, Obeyed Zakani. Oh, yeah. Very cool. In the city of Ganja, in the Republic of Azerbaijan, there is a street, a school, an academic institution, a museum, and some other places that have been named after her. Very cool. Oh, that's awesome. And in 1982, a monument was erected of her in the city to pay homage. And in 2013, as a part of the International Museum Day, an exhibition dedicated to Mahasti was held in Azerbaijan's History Museum. Hot damn. Yeah. That's so cool. I fucking love this woman. Yeah, she's great. So she wrote other things besides Rubai's, mm -hmm. but she is most famous for them. Uh -huh. And I just, I put this poem down that's not a Rubai, that's written by her. Uh -huh. And I just, I'm going to read it. Tell please. That's how we're going to end it. Yes. Okay, so this is called The Pathway Finally Opened, 
And it is a translation done by David and Sabrina Fideller. When my heart came to rule in the world of love, it was freed from both belief and from disbelief. On this journey, I found the problem to be myself. When I went beyond myself, the pathway finally opened. Oh, God damn it, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. You know, I just had this thought. There is so much time and space mm -hmm. between Mahasti mm -hmm. in the 12th century mm -hmm. to us as people doing this mm -hmm. right now. In 2021. In 2021. Thousands of miles, thousands of years. And yet the essence of what she's writing about, about like love and relationships and freedom and all of these core things, like it mm -hmm. doesn't matter when and it doesn't matter where. It just, it's such like a human thing. Mm -hmm. And it just, it feels like such a deep, deep, soulful connection mm -hmm. to another woman from such a different place in time. Yeah. It's really like timeless. It absolutely is. In its message. Yes. Oh, it's such a beautiful like way to connect to people and be like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 8,000 years ago <laughs> and 8,000 miles away. She's feeling the same damn way mm -hmm. that I have felt at times in my life. Yeah. Oh, that is beautiful. Oh, I love that. Yay. <laughs> oh, that was so great. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. <sighs> well, y'all, we should probably wrap this up. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Danny loves how much we just drag this part on. Yeah. There was <laughs> there was a moment there where me and you both took a breath in and looked at each other and went did, said nothing because <laughs> none of us knew how to transition. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yes. Please tell us what you think mm -hmm. and wherever you are listening, rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah, to that broad scout moxie. Please give us those five stars, mm -hmm. and then you can go on all of our social medias and interact with us and follow us and like our pictures and stuff mm -hmm. at. Let's see. On Facebook and Instagram, we are at that Broads Got Moxie. Mm -hmm. And on Twitter, we are at Broads Got Moxie. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> if you wanted to say anything to us, had any recommendations, wanted more poems, I don't know, uh, <laughs> you can email us at thatbroadsgotmoxie at gmail.com. Yes, please do. We yes. would love to hear from you. Yeah. All right, y'all. Okay. That's all we got. Bye. See you. Music by Sage Krenning, cover art by Vinny Navarrete, produced and edited by Danielle Barsanti. Side effects of listening to this podcast may include excessive moxie, zero tolerance for the patriarchy, sass mouth, excessive sweating, tipsy tittering, desire to stick into the metaphorical man, fear of cats, empowering women, clammy hands and feet, the inability to do math, lack of patience for the bullshit, thirst for knowledge, questioning the system, cravings for bougie chicken, vodka, and justice, and in some cases can cause death on hills.